0: I'm excited for all of us to hear from a brand new friend of mine. His name is Isaac Adams. Isaac is a brand new pastor at Iron City Church over in Southside, which means he's a brand new Birmingham resident. I hope that you'll welcome him. Before that, he was on staff as a pastor uh, with Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. with Pastor Mark Dever, founder of the Night and Marks Ministries. You may have heard of them before. Uh, but listen, he's doing a fantastic job over in Southside. I hope you welcome him. Uh, he has a wife and three small children. They're becoming Birmingham residents, but he's also an author. Um, he's written uh, multiple books, including this one uh, called in Talking About Race. And he's also the founder of an organization called United We Pray. Uh, listen, I am excited that the Lord has brought Isaac here to Birmingham, and I'm excited for him to become a friend to us. And so will you join me in welcoming Isaac Adams. Good morning. Yes, I love talking back. If you're encouraged by any point in the sermon, you feel free to say amen loudly, okay? Amen. Amen. Here we go. Uh, Like Adam said, I bring you greetings from Iron City Church over in Southside, uh, which I'm of course new uh, to, Uh, and I'm thankful I've gotten to know your pastor, Adam. Uh, I may get in trouble uh, for saying this, um, but he's not here, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Um, On a more serious note, um, a a month ago uh, today, April 1st, uh, I was preaching my mother's funeral. It was very unexpected. Um, Mom passed away. Uh, shortly after we moved uh, from Washington, D.C., where I grew up. I lived 10 minutes from mom, uh, basically my whole life. Mom passed away. Uh, And so I needed to get back to D.C., my wife, and we have three kids, five and under. Uh, And uh, my wife is white, and our kids look like little balls of peanut butter on wheels, and (laughs) that's my family. And, uh, you know, Adam, uh, Adam has really befriended me since I've moved to Birmingham. And uh, Adam uh, called me and kept calling me uh, and said, Isaac, what can we do to help you? And, you know, when you're in grief and when you're in suffering, it can be a lot to think through how people can help you. You get lots of meals. That's all great. Praise the Lord. I said, Adam, this is what will really help me since you keep asking me. I need to get my family of five back to Washington, D.C. because I need to preach my mother's funeral. And it was this church that paid for us to get back to D.C., And I want to stand here and say, thank you, beloved, because that's the kind of partnership we have in Christ and in the gospel. We welcome one another, even when we don't know each other, as our brother so powerfully talked about. So it's a joy to be here with you all today. This was all for free and not a part of the sermon. (laughs) So, uh, yes, uh, let me pray and we'll really start the sermon. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Our request is simple, that you would open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? It's a question we often ask. We ask it at the popular level. Uh, We follow people on Facebook and Twitter uh, so that we can see who they are. Uh, We ask it at the individual level, too. In good times, we might meet an intriguing person and think, hmm, who are you? In bad times, someone, uh, maybe a child talking back to us, offends us, and we think, who are you to say such and such to me? Who are you? We naturally ask as we evaluate others. But friends, today, let's take that question and turn it right back around to ourselves. Ask yourself, who am I? You might think the question is silly or unnecessary or weirdly introspective, uh, but God doesn't. No, he wants us to read our text today and ask, who am I? So please turn now to Psalm 1 uh, if you have your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, uh, that big number, 1, is the Psalm number. And the verses, those six little numbers after are the verses if you're new to the Bible. Asking yourself, who am I? Hear now the word of God. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 almost sounds like a parable or a proverb, doesn't it? We're not sure who wrote this first psalm and when, but it serves as the gateway to the book of Psalms. It establishes the theme of the entire Psalter. That's what the book of Psalms is called. And the theme of Psalm 1 speaks of instruction for holiness and for happiness, The psalm speaks of the way of the righteous, the blessed who love God, and because they love God, they love his word, and so they submit to it. Unlike the wicked, they obey it. That's a summary and 30,000-foot view of the psalm, but as we dive into the psalm, we'll see it really breaks down nicely into two sections, verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 6. So if you're taking notes, our outline will follow this breakdown. So we'll look at the first section first, verses 1 to 3, and then the second section, verses 4 to 6. And we'll ask ourselves a question for each of these sections. And these secondary questions will help us answer our larger question, who am I? Okay, so question verse, for verses one to three to ask yourself is this, am I blessed? Am I blessed? Question or point number one, am I blessed? In verse one, we meet this man or woman. That word man represents a godly person, represent, regardless of gender. And this person is Blessed. By blessed, blessed, the psalmist doesn't merely mean a person who has nice things. No, he means this person is truly happy. And not just happy in the way we often use the word referring to an emotion that comes and goes. No, the psalmist means happy in the sense that the man has a sturdy satisfaction and growing pleasure in God. Uh, regardless of his circumstances, the blessed person is in a state of well-being because he, kno- he has known and is still knows God's favor. Friend, can you imagine your happiness not being controlled by your circumstances? After all, how is it that someone like the Apostle Paul could be in jail and write such a happy letter like Philippians? Beloved, can you imagine your happiness being beyond the reach of your circumstances? This can be the case for those who know God's favor. And how does one who knows God's favor act? They act rightly. Righteously. Uh, He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of God scoffers those words counsel the wicked sinners and mockers or scoffers they're all meant to describe the unrighteous friends for God there is a clear difference and a great difference between the right way to live and the wrong way but is living righteously as simple as doing good things is it as simple as ignoring people who we think are wicked? You know, we don't talk with them or ever stand with them. Uh, you know, Easter just came and went. Uh, as Adam said, I was, I'm from Washington, D.C. Uh, moving to the south, I've learned that Easter is different down here. Uh, Easter meal is different. There were police literally directing traffic at the Honey Baked Ham Company. <laughs> I've never seen such a wonder in my life. But, you know, is being righteous as simple as a family member offering you advice at the Easter meal and saying, sorry, I'm righteous, I can't listen to the counsel of the wicked? Well, no. All people are made in God's image, and so we're called to love others, to respect them and do good to them. God's people are called to be those who are in the world, but not what? Yes. Yes. So in verse 1, the psalmist is saying the blessed man is the person who is not fundamentally characterized by evil actions and wicked company. Uh, He's not saying uh, the blessed man is perfect. No, we all sin. I hope this isn't an encouragement to you. I'm going to say this to my church later today. Holiness is not marked by the absence of sin so much as it's marked by the hatred of sin. Holiness is not marked by the absence of sin so much as it's marked by the hatred of sin. A lot of you are fighting sin, I trust, but some of you are discouraged because you've not yet gotten rid of that specific sin in your life, whatever it may be. I get that. But, brother, sister, hear me. The fact that you want to get rid of that sin is its own victory. The old you will used to be fine with that sin, but now you want to get rid of it. Praise the Lord. So the blessed is not the sinless person, but the person who yearns to be. Sin, of course, is doing what we want instead of what God wants. Kids, that's how I define sin. Sin is doing what we want instead of what God wants. But the blessed are those who are saddened by their sin. Who turn from it. Uh, I trust this sounds familiar as y'all recently did a series on repentance. Uh, the blessed do not repent ultimately for, th- for themselves. But out of love for God and to the glory of God. Because they know what God has done for them. As we sang at the top of the service. I sing because of what you have done for me. So my friend. If your Christianity never challenges the way you live or the people and things you pursue and surround yourself, friend, you may have simply made up your own religion. God calls his people to abstain from evil. That's what holiness is in its most basic sense, cleanliness from impurity. Uh, Paul tells Christians to flee evil desires and pursue righteousness. And friends, that pursuit is hard. Many of you who have been walking with the Lord for years now know it's hard to be a Christian, isn't it? It's hard to fight temptation. Our passions still rage And war within us, James and 1 Peter say. And that's why we can appreciate so much the warning of verse 1 in our psalm. Do you see the progression of verbs? I want you to look at this. When I was a teenager, this struck me for the first time. This is when I really got into the Bible. These progression of verbs. Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. Sit in the seat of scoffers. Isn't that how sin works you think a little can't hurt so you walk with it and those who enjoy it but before long you're stuck standing in your sin it's harder to throw off and suddenly you look up and you're sitting rooted in your sin i wonder if you're sitting in sin this morning if you are, humble yourself before the Lord. Confess to God. The scriptures say that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters, God, God gives us even more than forgiveness. He gives us other brothers and sisters to help us fight our sin. Christian, we're not called to walk, stand, and sit by ourselves. No, we're called to march with the family of God, our local church. So, if this church is where you primarily attend, this is who you should be walking with in life. So, friend, let me ask Do you love the company of the wicked more than you love the family of God? Are you a blessed person? I speak of love because that's where the psalmist turns in verse 2. So negatively in verse 1, he talks about what the blessed person avoids. But in verse 2, he positively turns to the heart. He says of the blessed person that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So the psalmist makes clear that righteous acts, what we saw in verse 1, are not merely external, but they flow out of the internal, the heart that delights in the law of the Lord. When you see Lord like this in all caps in your Bible, it's not a typo. Uh, It means Yahweh, which was Israel's special name for God. God had a personal relationship with Israel Uh, He chose them, not because of anything they did, but simply because he loved them. And he kept them and repeatedly delivered them from trouble. Israel usually responded by disobeying, making clear that they did not deserve such kindness. But because he had every right to, and because he wanted his people to flourish and be happy and whole, and to be distinct and to know him and reflect his character, Yahweh gave his people Rules, specifically through his servant Moses. Rules like the Ten Commandments and other laws that Moses received and kept in the Torah, or the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the Pentateuch was the psalmist's Bible at the time. It's the law of the Lord that verse 2 is, t- is talking about. And the psalmist says the blessed man wants to obey these divine laws. Uh, He wouldn't want to out of his own natural will, but because he has known God's favor, the righteous person treasures the words of God, not the words of the wicked. His appetite has been transformed. That's how you can tell someone has been truly converted, that they've been made new. They want things that they didn't want before. And that no one naturally wants. Uh, Imagine a toddler saying, yes, mom, dad, give me broccoli. I'd be like, something supernatural is happening here. When we're talking about delighting God's word, you better believe we're talking about supernatural delight. And those who delight in God's word trust that more blessings come from obeying it. Uh, By grace, they understand that a holy life is a life that follows God's instruction and that a holy life leads to a truly happy life. This may seem so backward to us because we live in a world that never associates happiness with obedience. Nevertheless, the blessed person studies God's law. He meditates on it how often? Day and night. Mentioning those two ends of the spectrum, day and night, it's a Hebrew poetic technique that suggests day, night, and everything in between. The blessed and meditate all the time. In bright seasons of life and in dark seasons of life, the blessed person is joyously devoted to God's word. Are you a blessed person? Let me be crystal clear. The righteous actions we're speaking of, like delighting in God's word, do not make you right with God. No, they flow out of a heart that has already been declared right by God. A heart that knows God's favor is a gracious gift, not a reward for any good thing that a person has done. So, my brothers and sisters, do you delight in reading and obeying your Bible? Or has reading what God says become boring to you? Mundane. It so often can in the Christian life. Friends, if we're honest, Bible reading is hard, isn't it? The Bible is hard to understand sometimes. Many of us have families, doctor's appointments, funerals, just, or just plain old fatigue. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't read my Bible all week, much less once a day. And sometimes encouragements to read God's Word sound like encouragements to blind faith, you know, just read the Bible and be quiet. Brothers and sisters, what should we do when we're discouraged in our Bible reading? Well, we remember that God didn't save us because we read the Bible perfectly, but because of his grace. We remember that we need not expect a feeling of euphoria every time we read the scriptures. We remember that we can't calculate all the things that God is working out in our lives when we read his word. I've heard it said that God is doing 10,000 things in your life. You can see maybe three of them. Or think of it like this. You know when you're flying on a plane and, uh, you know, the air, uh, the, the stewardess uh, goes through the little spiel and they talk about how the oxygen mask will drop down and oxygen is flowing. Don't worry, passenger. Oxygen is flowing even if the mask doesn't inflate. The bag doesn't inflate. The same is true of our Bible reading, Beloved. Even if you can't see anything happening, oxygen is flowing. So read the Bible. Breathe in the word of life. When we're discouraged in our Bible reading, we ought to keep reading Scripture and building our knowledge of God because that's what helps fuels our love for God. And we do so by moving forward one foot of faith in front of the next and continuing the work of reading our Bibles. Beloved brothers and sisters, it takes work to read our Bibles. Joy and delight in God do not come naturally they require sacrifice commitment and work but then again doesn't every relationship we value require those same things verse 2 shows us that delight in our god requires work look back at it uh, the righteous man delights in the law of the lord he does what he meditates day and night it's the meditation that fuels his delight but I fear meditation is a lost discipline in the Christian life today. One of the results of the fall can be laziness in a mindset that says something easy is good and something hard like meditating is wrong. But what does it mean to meditate? To meditate, Martin Luther, one theologian says, is to think carefully, deeply, diligently, and properly. It means to muse in the heart. So when we're talking about meditating, we're not talking about sitting and humming or emptying your mind. We're talking about filling your mind with Scripture, thinking about it. You could put it like this. When I bought my wife's wedding ring, the thing fascinated me. For some absurd length of time, I twirled it in front of my face. I wanted to see every every facet, every reflection of life. Does it smell like anything? What's it taste like? Don't worry, I didn't actually lick the ring. But brothers and sisters, God's word is the diamond of the church. Meditate on it. Luther goes on to say that Scripture is a stone of offense and a rock of scandal for those who are in a hurry. Beloved, don't gloss over this diamond. Bible intake is not optional for the Christian. It's basic. And I'm encouraged by so many of you. I'm looking out and seeing older saints in the faith, who model what years of meditating on Scripture can do. Continue in that, brothers and sisters. You are a tremendous testimony to the value of God and his word. I'm encouraged, O community, you gave your pastor time off so he can spend more time in the Bible and come back refreshed and ready to do that more faithfully on your behalf. As a pastor, let me see. Let me say, thank you for giving him that time. Now, it's true, uh, beloved brothers and sisters, that many of us don't have time to meditate, which means we're going to have to work to make time. And it will likely mean sacrificing some part of our schedule. It Might mean some creativity, like listening to a sermon as we drive to work. Moms with young kids, that's my wife, might mean just writing a Bible verse, putting it on index card, putting it right above the sink as you do dishes. You know, you can just take one verse, whatever it is. You don't have to read a thousand verses in a private prayer closet to meditate. So look at Psalm 1. There are six verses. You could take one verse per day and ask who, what, when, where, why, and how of that verse. Who is the blessed? Why is he blessed? And run off with the text. That's all I'm doing with the passage today. I'm asking questions, seeing what it says. We can meditate on verses 1 and 2 longer, but we do need to move on. Verse 3 describes what this blessed, righteous person is like. Such beautiful imagery here. This one who delights in God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water. So this person is firmly established. He's rooted like a tree. The water close to him nourishes him, shown in the fact that his leaf does not wither. And his nourishment is shown in what the tree produces, fruit. Fruit. In the Christian life, good fruit is evidence that God is at work in you. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, every good tree will produce fruit. And he had in mind this blessed person, And as I reflect on trees that bear fruit, I think of how that fruit is a blessing to others, right? We like apple trees because we like apples. To say it differently, your fruit isn't simply between you and God. No other people also benefit from the fruit that God produces in you as you grow in conformity to his word. So when you read in your Bible that you should serve one another, And you do that in faithful obedience. Your Bible reading benefits others. You're like an apple tree dropping apples for those around you to feast on. To put it simply, people around godly people prosper. So look around you and ask yourself, who am I prospering? Who's benefiting from being around me? Spiritually. Beloved brothers and sisters, let's love and pray for one another, especially those in our church. I mean, what a prayer Psalm 1 is for someone else. You can meditate on this text by praying, Father, help my husband to delight in your law. Push my deacons to meditate on it day and night. Keep my sister from walking in the counsel of the wicked. Make my grandson, especially if he's particularly lost, like a tree planted by streams of water so that he or she may not wither. Friends, taking God's word that he has breathed and praying it back to him is a wonderful habit to develop. One poet said, prayer is God's breath returning back to him. Pray to love God's word like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who prays, incline my heart to your word and not to selfish gain." And it's here I want to pause and ask if gain is wrong. After all, what about that last line in verse 3 about a blessed person? Look with me. In all that he does, he prospers. Really? Really, God? How can that be true when so much around us tempts us to believe a different story? Well, beloved, by the world's standards of health and wealth, we might not be prospering. There's a lot of churches that will tell you lies from hell about prosperity and that God will give you health and wealth if you just do such and such. But hear me clearly, friends. By the world's standards of health and wealth, we might not be prospering. But by God's standards, we are prospering if our happiness isn't dependent on stuff, but on Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Consider him, brothers and sisters, who endured from such sinners hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Before we consider Jesus further, I want to move on to verse 4, which brings us to the second section of this psalm. Second section. The question for this section, verses 4 to 6, is this Am I wicked? Question or point number two Am I wicked? The scriptures are clear, all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, by his grace, has counted some as righteous. What of those who haven't been counted as such? Well, our text implies that the wicked do not have true happiness. They do not submit to God's word out of love for God. They walk in their own counsel, stand stubborn in their own ways, and try to sit on the throne of their own lives and rule them. They don't truly delight in God's law, but sin day and night. They're not planted by streams of water. They wither. Verse 4 explains their state simply by saying, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the psalmist agrarian culture I would have naturally understood this farming simile before I moved to Alabama. I lived in Washington, D.C. I'm a city boy, so farming talk is foreign to me. But I trust that y'all know that chaff and husks are the straw that get removed when, when farmers are threshing wheat. In other words, the chaff is the bad part, the utterly useless part of a harvest. Unlike the firmly rooted tree of verse 3, chaff has no rooting. And that's why when the farmers throw the threshed wheat in the air, the breeze drives it away. Uh, Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, the wicked are driven away from true blessedness because of their evil works. And a strikingly similar passage to Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, another good passage to meditate on. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Friends, notice that fruit can be good like it was in our first section or bad like it's implied to be in our second section. And God is the fruit evaluator. An evaluation, judgment, is exactly what we see in verse 5 of Psalm 1. What is that therefore, therefore? Well, it's there to mark the transition to the conclusion of the psalm. It's there to say, because the wicked have no rooting. Verse 5, look with me. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Verse 6, 4, or because Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish brothers and sisters we will all appear in Yahweh's courtroom not as those who pronounce judgment but as those who will be judged the wicked will not make it through this judgment they'll be cast to that place of eternal unrest hell and left to our own, none of us will stand in the congregation of God's people, the righteous, because none of us are righteous. So the question is, how do we become righteous in God's sight? Friend, we turn from our sin and trust in the one who was righteous, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Though Jesus walked among the wicked, stood in the way of sinners, and took the mocking of scoffers when he came to this world, though he was tempted as we are, he never gave in to temptations because he delighted in God's law perfectly. The law is what Jesus quoted when he fended off Satan's temptation in the wilderness. So you remember, Israel in the Old Testament went through the wilderness and failed. Jesus went through the wilderness and succeeded. Friends, you can read Matthew 4 about that this afternoon. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the most glorious picture of what the blessed man of Psalm 1 looks like. We are not. We should have been on that cross because like Adam and Eve, we took the fruit. But praise God, Double Oak Community Church, that Jesus is the one who climbed the tree. Friends, instead of being like a tree planted by streams of, live, streams of water, Jesus actually hung on that Roman tree as water streamed from his side. Jesus, the perfect one, withered as the unrighteous on the cross. He, the righteous one, lost everything so that we, the wicked, might prosper. Friends, on the cross, Jesus drank the bitter cup so that we might drink God's blessing. We, weak little trees, can't even save ourselves with our own fruit, but the fruit of Jesus' tree would prove enough, sufficient, to cover the sins of all who would trust in him. Jesus' fruit would nourish us back to life. And how do we know this? Because three days after his murder, Jesus came back to life. His resurrection proved that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So now those who put their faith in Christ, those who turn from their sin, those who were once wicked can stand in the judgment with confidence. They can stand fully forgiven of every sin. Every sin. That one you can't stop thinking about. That one you committed that no one else in this room knows about. Friend, that sin. Jesus is enough for that sin. And we can stand in the congregation, beloved, of the righteous because we will not be judged on the basis of our deeds but on the basis of Jesus' deeds. As Paul says, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we, the wicked, might become the righteousness of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, won't you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today? Friend, take this news. Be freed from and forgiven of your sins. Come have some supernatural delight. And I speak of delight because frankly, we all must answer yes to question number 2, am I wicked? But praise the Lord that we who trust in Christ Jesus can answer yes and amen to question number one, am I blessed? Because we know Jesus is our righteousness. Amen? Amen. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. Will you lean wholly on it? Who are you? Let's pray. Father, we pray asking you To search our hearts honestly. To convict us of sin. Lord, what we have not, we pray that you'd give us. What we know not, we pray that you'd teach us. What we are not, we pray that you'd make us. But Lord, we praise you because you've made us righteous in Christ. Lord, for anyone who's not there today, we pray that they would be counted righteous in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.